We usually start the podcast with a song or funny anecdotes, but for the third time in our 69 episodes, we won't be doing that. And I think this, of all weeks, merits this change in approach, doesn't it, Chern? It really does. And it is somewhat hard to put down our thoughts that will perfectly encapsulate the horror, sadness and somewhat inevitability the next few days will bring to the people of Ukraine. Our thoughts turn to the families now separated, the young men who have seen their futures ripped away from them as the gongs of war break up, and to those remaining that are in shelter in the subway stations in Kiev or simply trying to flee for their lives across to Europe as the enemy encircles around them. Yeah, and, and to all of Ukraine, your courage is inspiring all of us around the world. And um, we are certainly, me and Chern, sending all our good wishes to everybody there. Slavia Ukraini. Hello and welcome to Ballad to Talk About. It is Sunday, the 27th of February, 2022. And joining me as always from the other side of the world is my co-host Sam. Hey Sam, we made it to episode 69. So I suppose any plans for the summer? Is it going to be as hot as summer as the summer of 69? <laughs> I mean, I hope so after the awful weather we've been having in the UK. I mean, we went from Storm Eunice to Storm, I think it was Franklin, but it seems to be non-stop storms for the last few weeks. It certainly has, um, and it's been, uh, uh, I even saw there's an earthquake in Birmingham to add to the list of things that could have gone wrong, and the typical memes of, you know, you know, mass cleanup needed with a fallen down wheelie bin, or the wheelie bin that was thrown out in the sky. Did you see that one? I did, and, uh, you know, some people say that climate change is a myth. Well, um, you know, I suppose that they're now discovering that that might not, that might not be so so such a mythical thing after all. Anyway, our thoughts this week will be turning over to halfway around the other side of the world in South Korea, which is a country we haven't covered before, and I'm sure you are as excited as I am to be talking about it. And there's good reason to talk about it because next week South Koreans will head to the polls on the 9th of March to elect a successor to President Moon Jae-in, who is constitutionally barred from serving a second term and so the next successor will be serving a five-year term so sam let's start us off by discussing what are some of the scenarios so the constitution will ban will limit south korea's as we said earlier to a single five-year term no incumbent and it is going to be a tight race isn't it between lee jae moon of the democratic party and yong suk Jul of the people's power party but it is far from clear who will be coming out on top first. So what are the main issues that have dominated this campaign? I mean, similar to many elections taking place at the moment, I think it's hard to look beyond COVID-19 as one of the big issues of the campaign. I mean, South Korea had had pr a pretty successful record against COVID-19 for most of the pandemic. But like most of the world, and uh, when the Omicron wave came... Um, they started to suffer in the same way that everybody else was suffering. And to be honest, they had quite an effective vaccination rollout as well, which did help them. So the COVID-19 pandemic is on the table in this election and the ec economic recovery from it is also on the table because the two competing powers have very different approaches to the economic recovery of South Korea, whether it be focusing on the bigger, more corporate 
approach or whether it's more through welfare support and encouraging the civilians of South Korea to, to, to be better off rather than just the companies. So there is a bit of a dynamic there. I think, however, in this election, it's difficult to look beyond a more candidate-based approach to the South Korean presidency because we have two very different candidates on the ballot, not just different from each other, but different to candidates that have come before them from their relative right or left blocks. So most of the tone of this campaign has been less about issues and more about the numerous controversies that have surrounded either of the top two candidates. And yes, we will get into some of the controversies because there are some in quite amusing ones, uh, scandals that have played both candidates, really. Um, I think just some further things to add. Housing is, again, a big issue in South Korea as well. Not only built up, um, as in many countries over the last couple of years, as, you know, COVID forced a lot of construction down, you know, prices of raw materials have come out, but house prices in South Korea have already started to be incredibly high even before COVID hit, and the pandemic has exasperated that. And that is potentially a weakness for the, the centre-left candidate, Lee Jae-moon, because he is one of the scandals that he's been involved with is allegations of corruption involving an urban development uh, when he was mayor of Songnam, which is surrounding Seoul, the capital Seoul. Um, other issues as well, as you hinted at as well, is uh, inequality as well. And corruption is another big issue as well uh, in lieu not only the candidates, but South Korea's recent history. Um, so there's quite a myriad of issues that South Koreans will be hmm. deciding. And and let's not forget the the perennial foreign policy question of North Korea as well, because, I mean, it's not unusual for these two parties to have different perspectives because the Democratic Party and the leftist tradition in South Korea tends to be much more in favour of reconciliation and eventual reunification, whereas the, the right and the current form of that in the People Power Party tends to be much more on the side, much more hawkish on North Korea um, and that has been, that is replicated once again um, in this election as well. And indeed, and I think not only is relations to South Korea, but to a larger extent, to what extent should South Korea be allied with the United States, which is the traditional uh, ally of South Korea and provides many troops. And I think the best way to see this is through TAD, which, um, which came out during the presidency of Donald Trump. And just to uh, reiterate, TAD is a also known as a terminal high altitude area defense. It's kind of a missile system that is on uh, South Korean soil, which the liberals, a lot of the liberals on the left of South Korea believe is kind of reckless, that can, a reckless missile system that can actually help to inflame and provoke tensions, whereas the right of South Korea believes that it's a necessary component of South Korea's national security, given it's somewhat a neighbor to the North. We'll be coming back to North Korea in a minute, but Sam, do you think that uh, this issue of North Korea has been, is particularly big in this election compared to previous ones? I mean, I think a lot more people are talking about it, but I, I think that mostly has to do with who the current incumbent president is, because Moon Jae-in, his legacy is, is reasonably broad, but one of the issues that he wanted to define his presidency was being the most dovish president on North Korea and trying to promote reunification and eventually having his legacy as being a, a detente with North Korea, to be honest. So I think one of the reasons North Korea is so much on the table in this election is mainly from reviewing the Moon Jae-in presidency and whether he managed to achieve that and whether his successor as president is either going to go in continuing that move towards detente or steering 
very much away from it, which is what would probably happen if the People Power candidate were to win this election. So I think the reason it is more on the table is because of who is coming before the president that will be elected next week. It really is a stark contrast in South Korean politics. The left and the right take a very drastically different approach to North Korea. And it's not surprising that Kim Jong-un has been rather silent on this, I feel. I think Moon Jae-in, if you look beyond it, is quite an interesting man to study in terms of his um, legacy and power. And you cannot distract from the North Korea issue, where it's a, it's a central thesis of South, any South Korean president. But he came into office uh, after the impeachment of the previous conservative president, Park Gwen He, who was the first female uh, president of South Korea. And he started it with incredibly high approval ratings, 84% actually when he took office in June of 2017, which slowly began to whittle away to somewhat roughly the same level of approval and disapproval until the pandemic hit. And then, like many incumbents, there was a rally around the flag effect that lasted potentially a bit longer thanks to South Korea's relatively successful handling of the pandemic and which culminated in his party winning a majority in the parliamentary elections held in October 2020. And then, uh, then as many governments around the world face, his shine has gotten off. And we're ending his period now very much with a negative net disapproval rating. So quite a reverse, really. So there's quite a lot of ups and downs in his tenure as president. And a lot of it is that I've also read is that people have been increasingly unhappy, as we said, given that now he's a net disapproval rating. And his rhetoric on the campaign has not really matched up with the promises he's been able to deliver in areas such as housing and inequality. Is that a fair assessment of his presidency? Yeah, I, I think that's a broadly fair assessment of his presidency. And I think it's difficult to overstate the significance of that 2020 legislative election result because with that um, Moon Jae-in's presidency was able to undergo a lot of policies on um, significant significant labor reforms and also reforms on corruption investigation which is becoming very important in this presidential election cycle as well because with the majority they achieved in the 2020 legislative election they could um, increase the minimum wage by 16 percent they brought the working work week down from 68 hours to 52, which, to be honest, I found incredible that any country had a 68-hour working week. That is astonishing. Um, and paid parental leave. And then the establishment of the Corruption Investigation Office for higher offices, which has become, as I said, important in this election because I think both of the candidates, if not just one of them, has been investigated by this new office as well. Indeed, it has. And let's be honest, South Korean presidents have had a long history of being falling foul of the law. In fact, I counted that every president up to Moon Jae-in that was elected since the turn of the 21st century has had some, either, either served some sort of jail term or been accused of some bribery or corruption allegations. So quite an astonishing fate, really. <laughs> I suppose that you, you can't escape the question. Do you think Moon Jae-in can avoid that rather sad fate? I mean, at the moment, it seems like he probably will, but a lot of these things have been uncovered years afterwards. So who knows? We'll have to wait and see on that one, I guess. We will have to wait and see indeed. But he's no longer running. It is somebody else. It is the governor of uh, Guijin province, Lee Jae Moon, as I said earlier, which is actually the most populous province surrounding Seoul. Um, he, a little bit of his background, he has, uh, apart from the fact, as I said earlier, he's been accused of 
uh, corruption allegations. And his son as well has been in the papers for uh, somewhat notorious reasons, been accused of gambling and accused of paying somebody for sexual services as well. So a slight negative on that. And um, he is a big advocate of universal basic income and move quite quickly early on in the pandemic to introduce a lot of leftist economic policies. So he's hoping that, and he will very much, I suspect, be the continuity candidate in terms of particularly the North Korea issue. I did note, Sam, and I thought this would be quite fun, is that he also said earlier in January that hair loss treatment should be covered as part of the national health insurance. <laughs> now, um, that is something apparently one in five South Korean men are apparently suffering from hair loss. So that's quite an interesting campaign proposition. I certainly never heard of it. <laughs> no, I've certainly not heard of that one before. Um, but I think talking about um, talking about this Democratic Party candidate, I think it's I think it's interesting to look back at the primary election campaign because actually it was quite a hotly contested primary on the Democratic side because the early front runner was actually former Prime Minister Lee Nakyon, who ended up actually falling by the wayside because he was criticised because of his proposal to pardon the former president Park Chun-hai and Lee Myung-bak. And so then Lee Jae-myung was able to surge as, as a front-runner candidate beyond that time. And it really ended up being a battle between two two ideological platforms within the Democratic Party, whether it be this more left-wing approach that the that the chosen candidate has has taken, or the former front-runner Lee Nakyon being more in the moderate lane for the Democratic Party, because Lee Jae-myung actually ran in the Democratic primary in 2017 as a more cavalier left-wing candidate. He didn't win, but he almost, to me, seems a bit like the Bernie Sanders ca character within the Democratic Party who has re-emerged in, in a more of a um, in a more of a popular uh, revived left-wing approach to South Korean politics and they're testing that at the ballot box this time around. Indeed yes and it's going to be a very interesting contest actually between the two candidates. The, the, it's somewhat remarked upon that both candidates are lawyers and there's been an incredibly negative campaign despite Lee Jae-moon uh, promised for the last 90 days to run a positive campaign, I can clearly see that judging by the allegations that are hurled against both sides, that it really is not the case. In fact, in many ways, now that you mentioned Bernie Sanders, it kind of reminds me of the 2016 US presidential election because one thing that strikes me both is that both candidates have over half the population dislike them. So it's more of a question really, in, as I see it, as which candidate do you least prefer? Or, mm. um, uh, sorry, are you most likely to prefer out of two very bad options, which is not, is, which I think in a way, in, it could be dangerous for South Korean democracy, particularly as the party system in South Korea is very weak, evident by the fact that the Democratic Party was only formed recently in 2014. And the main opposition party is actually formed in 2020, so it's not even three years old. And it's very much a personality-driven election. Yes, the legacy of Moon Jae-in is obviously going to be hotly debated and decided in this election, but it is very much focused on which of these two men, South Koreans, are less likely to be annoyed with, isn't it, Sam? No, I, absolutely. And I think I've got some approval rating stats just to illustrate that point, because at this point in the campaign, Moon Jae-in in 2017 had a 47% approval rating. Currently, 
Um, Lee Jae Myung has has the higher approval rating of the two at thirty six percent, and Yoon Suk Yul has a terrible approval rating of twenty five percent. So that's that's the state of play in this election is that the approval ratings really are on the floor. I mean, Chern, do you think? One of the things I was thinking about when I was looking at this election is that it seems from both parties' perspective that the party establishment completely lost control of the primaries. Do you think that's a fair take? I think it is a fair take. And I think it also speaks to a rider frustration with South Korean politics in general. We had seen a succession, as I say, of former presidents, you know, being jailed or being accused of crimes. And I don't think that has ensured that many people are trusting towards a party establishment and who they necessarily pick. And I think that's best seen in the rise of Yoon Sok Yoo, who in, on the right wing, he basically only joined the party in 2020, and yet still managed to emerge from the party primary as the winner, really. And even on mm-hmm. the conservative side, there's still an element of distrust because before he uh, went into politics, uh, before he, in fact, in last post, he was the prosecutor general under uh, Moon Jae-in, but before that, in 2016, he led, he was part of the special investigation that investigated Park Geun-hye, who was the last conservative president. And there's still some kind of lingering resentment among many conservatives towards Yoon Sok Yoon. But yet, the fact that if you are a pro-Park force, and she was seen as part of the party establishment, her father had been a former president itself, and yet, you still you elected somebody as your party primary who has a reasonable chance of becoming president, and he didn't even join the party to literally the five minutes before midnight. I think tells you the state of how South Korean politics is viewed at the moment. No, absolutely, and I think that's an opportune moment to move on to talk about the op- the opposition candidate. I mean, in terms of because the incumbent president is from the Democratic Party, coming from the People Power Party. I mean, this party group was only officially launched in February 2020. And in fact, their candidate in this election, um, Yoon Suk Yul, he only joined the party officially in July 2021. So this is a new ticket all round, whether it be the party or the candidate running. Um, They were formed as a merger of other conservative Korean blocs with the Liberty Korea Party, New Conservatives and Onward for Future 4.0 and currently occupy 103 out of 300 seats in the National Assembly. It's a right-wing party that supports liberal economic policies, particularly the conglomerate Chaibols, and holds a very hawkish position, as I said, on North Korea. Over the last year, the party has slowly rebuilt following the lows of the right in the 2017 presidential election and, in fact, the 2020 parliamentary elections. They've retaken the mayoralties in Seoul and Busan, which are seen as big victories for the right on the way to this presidential election as well. And Yoon Sok Yul, who is the candidate for the People Power Party, as Chern pointed out, was a former prosecutor general who had at one point a team that looked into the 2016 choice on Seoul that led to, as Chern pointed out, the impeachment of President Park Geun-hye. So he narrowly beat Hong Jun-pyo, who was the 2017 presidential nominee in the party primary and had quite a notorious um, disagreement with the People Power Party's chairman, um, who was accused of showing a biased view towards the primary and wanting to prevent Yun Suk-yul from ascending to the candidacy. So 
it really did start off on a rocky road for Yun Suk Yul. But Chern, as a starter point with the People Power Party, where do you view the state of People Power Party politics? Because the old saying goes that a divided party can't win elections. I mean, it seems like a divided is quite an understatement for the People Power Party. It is a real understatement, but I think the reason why in which this has been able to, uh, and you're right, you know, there's numerous evidence of divided parties not being able to win elections. So let's just look at the Labour Party for in the United Kingdom as one example for a couple of elections in the 80s. I think the thing you have to understand is that the party may be divided, but in such a personality-driven election with a weak party, it really doesn't matter. And particularly if you're a South Korean voter and you're only really comparing the leader, the the candidate for the Democratic Party, Lee Jun-moon, or the candidate for the People's Power Party, Yong so Yu. that's all you care about. You don't really care about how divided the party is, frankly. And I think as well is that nothing is able to focus the attention of conservatives, particularly the fact that they are in opposition right now and they want to reclaim power. And they view a lot of what President Moon Jae-in has done, mainly be on the national security front, you know, be on the economic front, whatsoever as something that's a total antithesis of what they are promoting. So I think nothing really concentrates the mind of, of a party and really up to an election, this close to an election, if they know that they have a chance to remove the president. And I think what as well is that for all his flaws, and even the party establishment might not like him in particular, is the fact that it is still somewhat of a close race. I mean, it is still neck and neck in the polls. He has somewhat of some opinion polls that point him to a small but notable lead in the polls. So I think that they are right now willing to stomach it, but whether this experiment will last with the next leader if it fails to win office remains to be seen at this stage. So I think at, at this stage, it's very much that, okay, this is the candidate we have. He seems to be doing reasonably well. We don't have to save our backsides. It's only the presidential election. So parliamentary, they don't have to worry about that. So I think the party for now is willing to get behind him. Yeah, I mean, just to run through a few of the controversies surrounding Young suk um, throughout the campaign, he's made comments such as um, wanting businesses to have flexibility on a 52-hour working week to allow people to, to work even more hours than that. He said that the feminist movement was to blame for the low birth rate in South Korea. He made claims that suggested that he, he believes the Fukushima nuclear power plant didn't explode. And he praised former dictator Chun Du Hwan as doing well in politics. And then later issued a faux apology on Instagram with a picture of his dog. Um, so these are some bizarre... I mean, that's not, that's not even talking about some of the controversy sources with the other side because... Um, because Lee Jae-myung was in, in a debate actually offered to pull down his trousers to disprove allegations of an extramarital affair. So all across the board, this campaign has been littered with bizarre political moments and some quite concerning scandals as well. But it seems like a lot of them um, rest on the side of the People's Power Party, where their candidate currently is under investigation and was charged by the Corruption Investigation Office on multiple accounts um, including abuse of power after wanting the People Power Party to lodge complaints against pro-government figures to influence the 2020 parliamentary elections. So all across the board, this election seems a bit of a um, scandal-ridden mess, really. 
And that's not even talking about Yoon Seok Yu's wife because she's also been in the press for all the totally wrong reasons as well. So on one side, you've got Lee Jung Moon's son, who's been, as I said earlier, has been accused of online gambling and paying people for sexual services. Yoon Seok Yu's wife has been accused of, she has questioned the motives of the Me Too movement. She is also accused of falsifying job credentials linked to stock manipulation and apparently involved in witchcraft. So it seems to be a... Um, not even their candidates themselves, but their families have also been dragged into the political dogmire. And I think that's what happens is when you have a polarized electorate with both parties policy-wise wide apart and a personality-driven election. And it's no wonder, as you said, Sam, that the disapproval ratings are more than half the population disapprove on one candidate. So how do you think that would impact the race? Because the next five years, and particularly for Yun Seok Yu's case, is that Parliamentary elections only take place every four years. The reality is he's selected now, the first two years at least, he's going to have to work with a legislature where his party only controls 103 out of 300 seats. That's a recipe for policy paralysis, isn't it? It does seem that way. I mean, the one saving grace, I think, for whoever wins this presidential election is that because of the unique nature of the global financial situation that we're in at the moment, emerging from COVID-19, there's sort of a pressing need to at least advance some um, policies to, to try and combat the quite severe economic consequences of the pandemic. So I think the context of South Korea's economy is important in suggesting that paralysis is just not acceptable and not going to fly. Even if you have to put down some really watered down versions of your policies, there is a need to put down some economic policies that can help South Korea emerge from the pandemic. So whilst I do think on many issues that the People Power Party might hold dear and Yun Suk Yul might hold dear to his heart, um, I think certainly in the economic realm, there will need to be some progress and need to be some cooperation across party lines. Absolutely. So it will remain to be seen what happens in that space. But Sam, the question is, is that we've seen over the last few months, the polls, you know, surges for one candidate, fall over, surges for one candidate and fall back. You know, between December and January, it was Lee Seok Yoon. You know, we then saw Yoon come back and now we're back even. Any theories why this circular? Is it because the various controversies turn out at a certain point in time? Therefore, one, they all hate, they all hate that. Or is it because people are saying, well, you know, we really have no clue because this is, we, we dislike both, so there's a lot of floating voters depending on wherever the mood swings. I mean, a few months ago, one of the big surges in the polls actually came from the third party candidate um, of Ahn Chul Su of the People Party, and that was mainly motivated by people just failing to believe in Yoon, and I think that's where Lee's um, appro uh, Lee's approval rating spiked and the party's pop the Democratic Party's popularity spiked was when that third party candidate surge appeared. So that explains one of them. But yeah, I do think it's mostly to do with just the ebbs and flows of the campaign period as these numerous scandals have come out. And I think we've almost reached a point in this campaign where nothing really comes as a surprise on either side. So every time there's a story, there'll maybe be a one, two day long surge in the polls, and then it goes back to level pegging. So I think maybe the victor of this election might just end up being the last person um, not to have a scandal against them in the run up to election day. But that's a real dire state of affairs, if that's what you're relying on. Indeed. So 
I suppose in our wrap up then that, you know, both candidates have high disapproval ratings we've talked about, you know, which fluctuate in the polls. It, you know, the task of sitting Moon Jae not only in policy work, national security, the economy, it's a, it's a tall task. So I suppose in the here and now, and we will come back to the results of the South Korean presidential election, which will be absolutely fascinating. What would both candidates have to do in the one week left? Because it, it doesn't seem right at this ninth hour that they can turn around their dismal approval ratings. Is it a question of motivating their supporters to go to the polls in particular? I think the motivation plays a large role and I think where differential turnout will play a huge role in this election because it's a close race. I mean, with a few exceptions, most of the polls since the new year have had um, results within the margin of error where any kind of surge in turnout in one area could lead to an overwhelmingly different result on the presidential election level in this election. So I think turnout will play a large role and both the campaigns will be focusing on their get out the vote operations on election day itself. Um, but in terms of what a candidate might have to do in the last few days of the campaign, I think it's probably just trying to make themselves more presentable than the other. But but saying that, we see that there's currently an 11% difference in the favorability of these candidates. There is not an 11% difference in terms of party support at the polls. In fact, Yoon is down 11% on approval rating, but currently is polling ahead of Lee in the presidential election polls themselves. So potentially, there's not necessarily much the candidates themselves have to do. It's more about the campaign and party operations, about trying to decide, do I want to continue this kind of dovish policy on North Korea, the more left-wing economic option, or do I want to remove the incumbent and go down a more right-wing track as we haven't done in a number of years in South Korea? So I think the candidates have played their role. They've established themselves, and to be honest, established themselves quite poorly because they're quite unpopular and a scandal-ridden. It's now the job of the voters to decide, do I want continuity or change? And that seems to be where the dividing line seems to be at this late stage. I don't know whether you agree with that take, Chern. I think you are right that it's the differential turnout that will matter. And this is a first past the post election. So in other words, we are only whoever comes up top in this round, only a single round, will become the next South Korean president. I think I wonder though, Sam, whether the difference between the candidate's relative approval rating and how much support they're getting to the polls is purely because the Moon Jae-in administration is dragging down Lee Seok-moon's approval rating because he is associated with the current administration. So whatever problems he has, you know, and it clearly seems to be a differential that people might slightly more prefer him, but nonetheless, because he's associated with uh, the current administration and new sort of use associated with change, you know, and people are annoyed with the, as evident by a net disapproval rating, that that's why Yoon Seok Yoon is ahead. So that's my theory. I think what would be particularly interesting is the role of women in this election. Now, from conservatives' perspective, a lot of conservative women could potentially feel annoyed. And I think that although the Democratic primary hinge on the fact that one candidate supported Park Goen Hye, it is actually should be noted that the former president herself but not Lee Moon Byuk has been pardoned. And there's a lot of, as I said earlier, resentment by pro-part women, uh, pro-part, and I suspect pro-female uh, conservative women about how Park Geun-hye was treated by Yoon Seok-yoo when he investigated her. 
So I wonder whether that's a clever campaign ploy. And she's been notably quiet about anything she has said so far as of time of recording in the lead, in the last crucial final days of the campaign. So I think there's a quite clever politics way of playing it. On the liberal side, in a more wider the role of women, one of the things that the Moon Jae-in administration has done is they have a, is to try and you know bring forward or advocate gender equality. You know, mm. they've created the Ministry of Gender Equality and Family, which Yoon Suk Yoo has pledged to close down. So we've got a clear difference in terms of how candidates perceive women. And it's been noted in the papers that the People's Power Party candidate, Yoon Suk Yoo, has attracted quite a lot of younger men who feel that Moon Jae-in's push for gender equality has hurt their own economic opportunity, particularly as women do not need to serve national service. They feel that they're being they have they are being held behind by that, and whereas the women who do not need to serve it can advance in the workforce. So there's a sense of the economic insecurity. So I kind of feel like you how women are perceived in South Korea will be the probably the deciding factor. And as you say, in a country of turnout that is differential, where not everyone has to vote, that could potentially be something to watch. No, I think that's an excellent point, and given how close the opinion polls seem to be in this election. I think we will be looking at the results in granular detail to try and figure out where these victories came from, because it does seem that every marginal shift in any demographic group could make the difference in this presidential election as we approach the final few days of campaigning. Don't worry, we'll be back after election day to dissect the results and discuss who the next incoming president will be. Until then... Chen? Yeah? don't think you're getting away with it that easily. Who do you think's winning this presidential election? I was hoping to get away with it. Um, <laughs> I have to say that I have been moving back and forth, really. But I have to say that if we take, if we look at the last couple of elections we covered this year, where there has been, if you take out Barbados, if you take out Portugal, I think the moon of the electorate is one where we're seeing rising cost of living issues, and rising frustration. And I think Moon Jae-in's net disapproval rating will mean that Yoon Seok Yoo is a slight favourite. And I do note that even though, and we're drawing once again to that same parallel as I mentioned earlier, the 2016 US presidential election, that Donald Trump, despite having a worse approval rating, uh, disapproval, well, higher disapproval rating, was still elected president over Hillary Clinton. I still think that those factors might mean that... Uh, he is the slight favorite, Yung Seok Yu heading into the second round. You know, it is, and I suspect that the volatility in the lecture of wanting something new will be the motivating factor. What do you think, Sam? See, I take a slightly different view, but I see exactly where you're coming from. I, for some reason, I think that Lee Jae Myung might just edge this election, mainly because I think that when when voters are assessing their economic fortunes and looking out of COVID. What we've seen in the last few months is that people tend to marginally favour the the approach of the centre-left, mainly because of the more heavier focus on welfare payments. I mean, South Korea is, is a very different economy to some of the others we've discussed um, recently, and also it has very different um, political traditions than some of the more Western European countries we've been talking about. But I think that when voters go to the polls in a couple of weeks' time, the approve the marginal difference in approval ratings of the two candidates might just make the difference. People might side with um, Lee Jae Myung 
and the policy platform that comes along with him, rather than what might be seen as the more rogue option of siding with Yun Suk Yul, the more unpredictable option. Um, whereas Lee Jai Myung, I think, just seems a safer bet if that's what this election wants to choose. But really, I wouldn't be surprised by either outcome. Yeah, I think actually, to be honest, now that I think a bit more about it, is that I think part of the thing as well is that when you have two candidates with very high disapproval ratings, we could either see one or two options. When you see that the stakes are two factors, if both candidates, and I think both are in this election, is that on the one hand, we've got two candidates with high disapproval ratings. So if you're a voter in a non-compulsory election, well, if you think, well, I don't like both candidates, the simple answer to me is not vote. You don't vote, yeah. And in those cases, particularly with in the, we know that right, uh, the People's Power Party draws a lot of voters from rural areas and conservative areas, older voters who tend to vote. That favors Yin Sok Mio, doesn't it? On the mm. other hand, if we got a polarized electorate with both candidates, you know, expressing different preferences on the economy and national security with very stark choices, we could see what we saw in the 2020 US presidential election, which is extremely high turnout because each side acknowledges the stakes involved and particularly the left, which has seen the progress that Moon Jae-in has made over the last four or five years, will feel something large like state. So I think it's which one of these arguments win out is will decide who wins the election, mm. don't you think? I think the absence of an incumbent in all of these elections we discussed that have um, just that bar candidates from running for a second term makes it even more interesting because there is an element of incumbency in terms of the party, but there's not a presidential candidate incumbency. And that's where you see these situations where Moon Jae-in will be leaving office and his successor will be either Yun Suk-yul or Lee Jae-myung, both of which offer quite a different approach. So it really is... Um, a fascinating election and will turn out to be fascinating, I'm sure, in a couple of weeks' time when we talk about the results. One question that just came to mind, Chern, which I think we'll end on, and I think we'll come back to quite a few times over the next few weeks and months um, as we talk about various elections around the world, is do you think that this South Korean presidential election will be affected at all by what is going on in Ukraine? Because South Korea doesn't necessarily have a strong history of any kind of relations to to Russia or 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 Ukraine aside from um aside from its more western alignment when it comes to um approaching Russia but do you think it will have an impact in this election at all I don't see how the events the last few days cannot impact South Korea it's gotten home to many countries around the world what is happening in Ukraine and I think and I wonder if it particularly hits home for South Korea because you're kind of, you know, there are some parallels in the country being surrounded by a cranky neighbor to its north. So, you know, one with, you know, a vast arsenal, military arsenal. And if, if that is the fear and safety and security is what is what I suspect many people would have, South Koreans, you know, in a similar sort of situation with fear, I think that's advantage Yun Sok Yun, frankly, in that scenario. Mm -hmm. um, but so, so my head tells me that that is an advantage to you, so you uh, in that scenario. I mean, scenario. we even saw this morning the latest report of North Korean ballistic missiles being fired. So really, if that is the concern, then you do th think that a more dovish, almost appeasement 
style approach to North Korea is not one that will be popular at the ballot box, given what the international community has seen, the consequences of that um, with their approach to Russia. So it is fascinating. It really is. But then again, you know, you have to also, the, the counter argument to that is that South Korea is on the other side of the world, you know, quite removed. And I don't know if compared to how Eastern European leaders have felt where they have very recent history of dealing with Russia in like in Hungary and all, and it's quite amusing to see Viktor Orban and Milo Zeman's position change virtually overnight on this. But South Korea doesn't have that history with Russia. So I wonder whether that as an issue would mean that South Koreans, while they're concerned and might be more concerned about security, is the primary domestic economic issues that would decide this election. Well, I suppose, Sam, as the classics would say, truly, time would tell, isn't it? It absolutely will. It absolutely will. And on that note, that is it for the latest episode of Ballot to Talk About. Do join us again next week when we'll be previewing the South Australian state election as Stephen Marshall tries to win a second term for his Liberal Party. And as always, we will continue to bring you up to date on the world of politics and elections from around the world. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at, at ballot underscore tour. And do leave us a rating or review or simply tell your friends about us. My name is Chen Han, and until next time, we'll speak to you soon. And to all of Ukrainians, please stay safe.